Uh, I was not told that there was going to be uh, kid pictures about me, so I'd like to lodge a formal complaint about that. Uh, that was going to be embarrassed when I got up here. Um, like Pastor said, my name is Eric Westa. I've been here uh, on and off for a long time. Pastor Mike uh, sent me an email earlier this week, and he said, you know, send me some information about you, and if you look in your bulletin, you can see a bio. I won't bore you to death with with all of that that's, not, that's in there. Um, but I went to Living Word back in the day. Pastor just introduced me ever to the, uh, our wonderful worship team up here as the oldest member of the youth group. So... Uh, I'm a kid at heart, so I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. Um, but yes, I've been uh, married for 13 years. I went to uh, Liberty University, uh, met my wife there, uh, got married, uh, and uh, wound up having to drop out. Went back about six, seven years later to earn my bachelor's degree, then went on to Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, don't worry, I'm not a full-fledged Baptist. I'm more of a Baptocostal. So... Uh, um, so, uh, I, I do have a three point sermon though. So, uh, you know, I got, I got to, I got to stick with, got to stick with my roots a little bit here. Um, but I do have a heart for teaching. I currently am an adjunct professor with Grand Canyon University. I teach everything from world religions, apologetics, uh, you know, ethics, uh, church history. So pastor likes to tease me about the scholarly thing. So far, uh, very few people have come up to me. So, Kind of, kind of glad about that. Uh, we actually had a conversation a couple months back. Uh, pastor was talking about apologetics, about the sermon series, you know, tough questions that people ask. And he went ahead and he's like, you know, he's rattling off different topics. And he says, you know, he's suffering. Can we trust the Bible? And then he's, he mentioned the problem of evil. And of course, you know, my ears perk up at that. And I'm like, well, you know, not realizing what I was saying at the time. I said, uh, well... I took a whole semester on the problem of evil. And pastor goes, really? <laughs> Here I am. So, <clears throat> But and I've, I've come to enjoy and I've come to realize that teaching and apologetics and defense of the faith is something that we really need in Christian circles. We need in the church today. And... Before we're going to talk about the problem of evil here, but before I do, I just really want to kind of just share with you the need for apologetics. I don't know if you if you have seen the world today, if you turn on the news, or if you uh, encountered this with you know your coworkers and things, but people are going to ask you those tough questions. You know that's why that's the title of the sermon series: tough questions that people ask. And I find that in many Christian circles, we know what we believe. We believe what we believe, but we can't articulate that well enough, which is why when pastor said, I want to do a sermon series on the tough questions that people ask, I said, that's probably one of the best sermon series that I think that you could, that you could convey to people. The tough questions, can we trust the Bible? Why is there suffering? Why is there evil in the world? The problem of evil, like we'll go ahead and we'll talk about today. In our world, we live in a digital age, right? I mean... I remember growing up, and my father worked in the Wayne Central School District, and in the summertime, he'd bring home an Apple II computer, if I'm dating myself here. Uh, it had the green screen. It had the typing tutor on there. I thought at five years old, like, this is the coolest thing ever. My kids don't understand the concept of not having the Internet. They don't understand the concept of, of not living in a digital age. Back in the day, you had those big black floppies. You put them in there, and you shut the door, and you turn on your computer, and that's your hard drive, and you're like, wow, that was so cool. Now... If you want any kind of information, if you don't know an answer, what do you do? Google it. 
That was really good. I like that for 8.30. Wow. So you Google it. You look it up. And you will find that in secular circles and in Christian circles, that's the common answer. Okay? The Internet, society has embraced technology. And by doing so, they have their hands on information more so than ever before. That's a great tool. It's a great tool for us. As Christians, it's a great tool for us to get the gospel out. It's a great tool for us to go ahead and to be a blessing to other people. We can reach more people and we can help more people and we can convey the truths about God's word to more people than ever before. Every year, more and more people are getting connected online, but there's also more and more disinformation that goes out there, more and more questions that are asked, more and more people that are online and reading philosophies and ideas that are against the Christian faith, that are against the Bible. And so that's why this sermon series is awesome. Okay, I'm just going to throw it out there and I'm just going to say that it's awesome. And you need to make sure that if, uh, if you haven't been here, you should be here. Subtle plug. Okay, so we sit here and we go through our day-to-day society and what's the first thing that we do when we get up in the morning? What, what, maybe, I'm dating, maybe I'm dating myself as a millennial here. But you check your phones. Check your Facebook. Check your email. You check and see what's out there. People are looking for spiritual content. They're looking for, to connect with other people. They're looking for answers on a day-to-day basis. And again, the whole concept of a selfie is what you see on TV. Our whole society has become narcissistic. Our whole society has become information-based. Three out of ten millennials, and again, millennials are people who are dated from 1980 forward. Three out of ten millennials say they search for spiritual content online. One of those topics being the problem of evil. The number when it comes to millennial Christians jumps to six out of ten. Okay, so the very nature, they're not just sitting in a church. They're actually going online and they're Googling it and they're looking for this kind of information. However, we're having an issue with the problem of evil because it is online one of the biggest arguments against the church, one of the biggest arguments against the faith. We're going to define it here in just a minute. But in 2012, they did a survey of millennials and said, why are you leaving the church? Why are you abandoning the faith that you held so dear? They gave several different reasons. 23% of those surveyed said that they rejected the teachings of their childhood faith or their belief in God. 11% said they had negative personal experiences with religion or negative life experiences in general. 8% said the perception that religion is at odds with scientific principles or logic. And the other remaining said perceptions that religion or religious people are hypocritical. Okay. We need to make sure that we have an answer for people. We need to make sure that we can convey to people the truths about apologetics, the truths about the problem of evil. Messages come in our media today, including the problem of evil. You go to CNN.com, okay? And I can guarantee you, if you go to the comment section, I, I don't recommend it. It's a horrible place. But you go to CNN.com, you look at the comment section down there, and you will see the problem of evil stated by, you might call them internet trolls, but the internet people that are on there. We just, if you tuned on the news yesterday, you probably saw what happened out in the University of California, Santa Barbara. They had the guy drives around in the BMW, 
And he winds up shooting up the campus over there, kills six people. His own life is taken. He's online. He's posting his stuff online. He's lost online. He's hearing from other people online. He has a problem with life. He has no answers. He has no hope. He has nothing that connects him to the faith and hope that we have in God. But he's completely online. He's surrounded himself online with the, with the philosophies and the ideas and the problems and the questions, that, the tough questions that we need, to, we need to answer. And he has no answers. And now him and others have paid the price for that. We need to make sure that we are out there and that we are conveying, conveying that you know, evil is real. We know that it's real, but that we have an answer to it. So I don't want to try to get too philosophical on you. I know I have three master's degrees, and pastor likes to wave that around. But I want to make sure that I go ahead and that I get uh, an answer to you about the problem of evil. Not just a philosophical answer. I want to do that because I want to make sure that you have the answer for when people at your job come up to you and they say, well, you know, why, why, why is there evil in the world? You know, why does God allow evil? Why did God let this happen? But more importantly, what I want to convey to you today is a practical response to the problem of evil. I want you, if you take nothing else out of here today, I want you to go ahead and be able to walk away with an understanding of what to do in, in the face of evil. So how do we, how do we define evil? We define evil in multiple ways. The one way that I prefer to define it is any action, any thought, or any attitude that is contrary to the character or the will of God. Let me say that again. Evil is any action, any thought, any attitude that is contrary to the character or the will of God. Now, Again, I took a, I took a class. Uh, it was a whole semester. In the morning, I wound up taking metaphysics. So my brain was already a pile of goo by the time I walked into my problem of evil class. And I had the same professor for metaphysics as I did for the problem of evil. So I think he was a little sympathetic to me knowing that my brain wasn't fully functioning after getting out of his first class. But he talked about how we define evil. And he also talked about that there's two types of evil in the world. You just thought there was one. There's two types of evil in the world. There is natural evil, and then there's moral evil. Natural evil is those famines, floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, natural disasters that happen to people. Some would argue that natural evil is not really evil at all. It's just nature doing its own thing. We're not even going to touch on that one. What we're going to talk about here is we're going to talk about moral evil. Moral evil covers the willful acts of human beings, just like what happened out in California the other day. Or when we sit there and we, we tune on the news and we see out in Sandy Hook and the, sh- the shoot, school shooting. Or we're watching TV and we have the Boston Marathon bombing. Or we, turn on the, we, we sit there and we look and you see gas attacks on innocent civilians in Syria. These are real things. Some are real people committing real acts of evil. And people are going to come to you and they're going to say, well, why does that take place? Why is that allowed? Again, moral evil is the willful acts of human beings, again, that are contrary to the character and the will of God. Now, there's, there's multiple arguments, but I want to break it down for you again. I don't want to bore you with a whole semester of, of information because I could easily go on and on. But I want to give you two main arguments here today about the issue and the problem of evil. The actual argument itself... 
that you will see stated again if you go to CNN, places like that, somewhat, somewhat kind of just flippantly, is this. If God exists, then there exists a being that is omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he's perfectly good. Sounds like our God, right? If you give me some feedback here, right? Yes, yes, okay. I might have been a Baptist, but I like feedback, so. <laughs> if God exists, there exists a being who is omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good. That defines our God right there. He's perfectly good. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. We sing songs about him. That's, that's our God. The second point, though, is that if there existed a being who was omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good, there would be no evil. He's perfect. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly powerful. He could take care of evil at any single point. However, the third point says, but there is evil. We can see evil. Evil is obviously existing. So if there exists a being who is omniscient, omnipotent, and perfectly good, there would be no evil. But since there is evil, there is no God. Now that's, a, you know, again, you go to, you go on online chat rooms, you see your friends, you know, co-workers, they might bring this up. They'll say something similar of like, why did God allow this to happen? If God existed, then this wouldn't have happened. You know, why did, you know, and things of that nature. So you'll get that in more of a flippant form. But the basic idea is that because evil exists, God does not. And on first glance, it seems like a pretty airtight argument because we obviously can see that evil exists. We obviously can, you know, again, turn on the news or it's happened to you, uh, you know, where somebody has done you wrong or things of that nature. There's two main arguments that I've found that people can, can use and you could use and you could take this when you have those water cooler arguments with your friends uh, about the nature of evil and the argument of evil. The first one is the argument for free will. Okay. If you're, if you like the concept of free will, you're going to love this argument. Okay. Free will, it was a, is a, it's a called a defense. Because I'll be honest with you, I sat in there for a whole semester, and the very last day, basically, what Dr. Martin in my class said is that, you know, he said, we're being completely honest. There is no silver bullet. There is no direct answer. We can't sit there and put all the problems of evil in a box and say, this is why. But we can come up with a defense to try to explain to people why there's evil in the world. One of the philosophers who came up with this, his name is, his last name is Planica. And basically he says for free will, he says a world containing creatures who are significantly free and therefore able to do more good than evil is more valuable, all else being equal, than the world containing no free creatures at all. Think about that for a second. To God, your freedom to do good works is more valuable to him than you having no freedom at all. Think about it this way. Go back in time. We'll go to the Garden of Eden. God goes ahead and he creates a perfect world in Genesis 1. He stacks the deck, if you will, in humanity's favor. Perfect garden, perfect world, perfect animals, perfect man, perfect woman, perfect scenario. He could have left it at that. But would they actually have had free will at that point? No. They wouldn't. So God goes ahead and he puts that tree in the garden and says, don't eat of it. And of course, we all know the end result of that. So God values the free will 
of you to choose to do good with the inherent possibility of you doing evil as more valuable than just turning you into a robot. It says, God can create free creatures, but he can't cause them to do only what's right, because if he does so, then they aren't free at all. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore he gives creatures the capability to do evil. And as it turns out, sadly, some of the free creatures God created went wrong in the exercise of their freedom, and this is the source of evil. We see this with Satan. Satan is created by God as an archangel, the highest angel that's out there. His job was to lead worship in heaven, and he basically falls from grace because he leads the rebellion in heaven. But he had a choice at that point. He had a choice to worship God. He had a choice to maintain his position, and he chose poorly. So again, God creates us free that we might do work. Why? For his glory. That's why we're here. Amen? Yes? No? Amen. We're here to do good works for his glory. But he gives us the freedom to do that. So we can do it of our own free will. So we can glorify God. So we can bring others to the cross. The whole point of everything. The whole point of the Bible. The whole point is we say it's a love story. You know, from beginning to end about about God reaching us. He creates us. We fall. And then the whole process of him coming and of Christ coming to save us. Why? So that he might be glorified. We might be saved and he might be glorified. Now, undoubtedly, you sit there and you tell somebody, well, look, you know, I understand where you're coming from, Eric. You know, this is great. Uh, I, you know, I have free will to choose. And so, uh, you know, God created us free, and that's great. But doesn't that, doesn't that make God the author of evil? I mean, after all, he created us with the ability to do evil. So doesn't that make, uh, doesn't that make God the author of evil? The answer is no. I hear a sigh of relief in there. The fact that free creatures, the fact that you and I can go wrong does not count against God. He gives us, he gave Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, he gave them the choice to do good or evil. He gives you and I, on a day-to-day basis, the choice of doing good or doing evil, to do good works or to do evil works. He gives us that choice. Does that make God culpable? Absolutely not. It's not his fault that you did wrong. And it's the same thing here. God's omnipotence, it does not count against God's omnipotence. It doesn't count against God's goodness that we mess up. The only way that God could have stopped the possibility of evil occurring is to take away the option of choice. And because he values your ability to choose to do good, he leaves that possibility in there. So it turns out evil is not a direct creation of God. But evil is a result of, of people and angels if you will, if we want to go there too, of exercising their freedom wrongly. So we have that. Now, the other argument is one that you've probably heard more often in the church, and it's, very, it's much more popular in the church. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 50. I want to make a joke about uh, one of the very first sermons I preached back in the day. Uh, I was 10. My parents videotaped it. 
Apparently there's all these videos and pictures of me all over the place. Uh, and I did it on Hebrews chapter 11. And if you remember Hebrews chapter 11, uh, it basically goes through, talks about Abraham and Isaac. And basically it's a faith hall of fame, they call it. So, of course, you know, I'm 10. So what I'm doing is I'm ta- talking about, uh, you know, these people in Genesis chapter 11, or uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11. And then I kept saying, turn back with me now. And I'd go make, make all the Baptists flip back through all their pages and go all the way back to Genesis. So I'm trying to avoid saying that because I see, if I say turn back to something, I see my parents snicker. So, because they're just like, ah, I remember that. So that's a running joke in our house now. Genesis chapter 50. The argument, so we just had the argument for freedom, for free will. Genesis chapter 50, we have... Joseph. Okay, let me set the stage for you with Joseph. Joseph is loved by his father. Joseph has the Technicolor dream coat. You know, again, that's a big thing back in the day. We joke about, you know, the play and things like that. But the very fact that he had a coat of many colors was a big deal back in those days because, again, you're talking about, you know, dyes and, you know, Things of that nature, which back you know in four thousand you know, or two thousand BC or four thousand years ago, that's expensive stuff. So the very concept that Joseph had a coat of many colors shows that he was loved by his father, and that's what made his brothers jealous. So here you have Joseph. He's a young guy. He's loved by his father. He has visions from God, and his brothers hate him for it. They're jealous of him. They throw. They take him. They trick him. They throw him in a pit. They turn around and they're like, hey, let's get rid of him, sell him into slavery. They tell his father, yeah, you kind of, sorry about that, you kind of got killed by a beast out in the, in the woods. And uh, yeah, here's this Technicolor dream coat and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's all mangled and stuff. So, so then they go ahead and so his father thinks he's dead. He's sold into slavery down in Egypt. He gets sold on the auction block. Again, nobody knows who he is. They just, he's just slave number whatever. He goes to Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife constantly comes on to him and then tries to assault him. And, of course, he resists. So then he's falsely accused of assaulting her. And then he gets thrown into jail. And then he's stuck in jail. And then, so here he goes from having this great life to being literally in the bottom of an Egyptian prison. And then the two guys that are there with him, one of them doesn't make it. The other one gets, gets out. And Joseph's like, hey, before you go, you know, when you get out, um, you know, don't, don't forget about me. I'm, I'm kind of still stuck here in prison. And the guy forgets about him. And Joseph sits in jail. Eventually, he gets sprung out of jail. Eventually, he winds up becoming the prime minister, if you will, of the nation of Egypt. And he winds up saving the entire nation of Egypt from a famine. And back in those days, if you study the, in the ancient Near East, Egypt was one of the major civilizations over there. And, the very, and everybody would come from all of North Africa, from the, uh, from the Palestine area, things like that. Every, you know, if there was a famine, because there was, you know, if you look at the archaeological records, there's always issues with that. People would just literally migrate to Egypt all the time. What does that have to do with this? Basically, what we see here in Genesis in, in Genesis chapter 50. If you look at verse, verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
Okay, if you know the story of Joseph, basically, like I said, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He has the visions from God to save all the people, to store up the food. If famine hits the land and all the people in Egypt, they actually have food. They're perfectly fine. They're going to be okay. His brothers, his father, they all show up because they have to migrate because the famine is so bad that they come down to Egypt for food. And through a bunch of different scenarios... Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And you can imagine now, this is years later. And Joseph all of a sudden is now prime minister of Egypt. And he's like, ta-da. Could you imagine what the brothers must have thought? He's going to kill us. Because he's now second in command of the nation of Egypt. And I'm sure he's probably holding a grudge. Because we kind of sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit, called him all sorts of names and... Kind of played him off as dead. So he's probably not in the best mood to see us right now. So the brothers, all of them, they go, they say, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that this day that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The argument is, they call it the argument for greater good. And it's the more popular one that you'll hear in the church today, is that when evil happens to you, and evil happens to me, is that God wants to work it out for the good, the greater good, for greater good for you, the greater good for me, the greater good for somebody else. In this case, here is Joseph again. He goes through all life. He's, he's blessed in his early stage of life. He gets thrown in the pit. He gets sold into slavery. But why? So he can save literally, so he can be put in a place literally to save millions of people. So he could be in a position years down the road. I'm sure he couldn't think that this was actually going to take place when he's sitting in the bottom of a pit going to get sold into slavery, that, you know, one day I dream of being the prime minister of Egypt. He's not thinking that. He's thinking to himself, I'm in the bottom of a pit here. This is horrible. My own brothers hate me. But in the end, years later, decades later, he's in a position to do, to do something good. So the argument is that there is a greater good, that God will go ahead and that he will go ahead and he allows for evil to happen for his purposes. It's a little bit tougher one to swallow. We can say on the surface level, wow, that sounds great. But when you're in the middle of it, when you're in the middle of it and you're suffering or somebody's done wrong to you or evil to you or fill in the blank, you're saying to yourself, why me? Why is this happening to me? You can't sit there and say, well, this, you know, thank you. And we always say that it was like, well, you know, we should thank God for that. And we should, we should thank God in all circumstances, as Paul says. But man, is it tough. It is not. It is not easy. Some would argue, too. Like, you know, so you sit there and you say, well, that, that's great, Eric. You know, that's, that was you know, 1800 B.C. What about, what about the modern day? Do you have a modern day example? When we were in, at Liberty, we actually heard this argument from, uh, from uh, visiting Jewish speakers when they talk about the Holocaust. Again, these are, these are Christian Jews. Um, and they look back at the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a horrible, horrible act of evil. You know, we revile the Nazis and Hitler to this day for what they did to the Jewish people. Six million Jews massacred in that space of several years. 
But we have to. But if we sit there and we look at it at face value in 1946, we sit there and we say, well, what is the purpose of that? Why is this taking place? You know, the Jews have been scattered to the four winds of the earth for 17, for 1,800 years. And now we have a nation of Israel again. Some of these Jews actually that I've heard, they've actually used this argument for the greater good, that God will use evil things for his purposes when talking about this. Because in 1948, there are 800,000 Jews living in the nation of Israel. That's all the people that were, they had left, a lot of them had left Europe. They had survived the, the Holocaust. They had survived the internment camps. They had survived the concentration camps. And they go down there. And now, in 2013, the nation of Israel exists, and there are 8.1 million Jews living and calling Israel home. Amen. So, again, we can sit there and we say, you know, it's, it's tough when we're in the middle of this. When we look at the things that are happening in the here and now, it's tough for us to go ahead and for us to realize, you know, that there might be some good coming out of this. But there can be. God's permission... Okay, I want you to get this. This is the major crux of this argument. God's permission for evil to occur is not the same as his approval. Okay, God's permission for evil to happen in your life is not the same as his approval. God does not enjoy seeing evil happen to his children, but he can use it for greater good. Look at the book of Job. God's up there. Satan shows up to report, as he's supposed to do every day, if we infer that from the book of Job. And God goes, you see my servant Job? He's awesome. He's so, he, he loves me. He's great. And Satan's like, well, you know, you bless him an awful lot. I bet you if, I, if, I, if you took all that away and let me have my way with him, that he'd curse you to his face. And God says, all right. God sits there and he permits that to happen. Does he approve of it? Does he like to see Job suffer? No, it never says anywhere that, that God enjoys Job's suffering at all. But does he permit it to happen? Yes. And in the end, what happens to Job? He's blessed doubly for what he has to go through. The argument, like I said, at first glance, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, we can sit there and we say, well, when we look at somebody's life and we say, well, you know, God's going to use that for a great purpose. You know, that's easy to say when it happens to somebody else, but when it's happening to you, that's when it's, that's when it's tough. So that brings me to the whole practical side of the problem of evil, okay? We've, we've talked about the problem of evil. We've talked about what it is. We've talked about the arguments. We've talked about, you know, when you're, you're going to encounter that. A lot of times online lately because that's where pretty much everybody's hanging out and the philosophies and this question is going to take place. But again, if you take nothing home today... This, I want you just to, to get this part down, is the practical side of evil. What do we do as Christians in the face of evil? In the face of evil, when people ask us the question, why does this happen, we have to, we have, to have an answer. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Okay? There are lots of Christians out there running around online waving this. We're supposed to hold to this. 
Gentleness and respect sometimes are lacking. We need to have an answer. That's the first part. We need to convey it the proper way is the second part. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in regards to evil that silence in the face of evil itself is evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. We are to do something in the face of evil. Too often as Christians, we sit there and we talk about evil. We talk about societal evil a lot. We sit there and say, well, abortion is bad, or we don't do anything about it. Or we say pornography is bad, and we don't do anything about it. Or we sit there and say, well, you know, I feel bad for that person over there because of what they're going through, and then we just go on our merry way and we don't think about it. We talk a lot about it, but we don't do anything about it. To not act is to act. As Christians, we should be out there confronting the evil that is in the world. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through through 26 says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, he's talking about spiritual gifts in this case, but I like this verse because of that last part. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If you stub your toe, your whole body hurts. You know, I got the other day, you see it on my hand here, I was out there in the backyard, I got a nice blister. This thing hurts. My whole hand hurts from it. It's not just this little localized area, but man, this whole thing hurts. If one part of you suffers, the whole, you know, it, all of you suffers. And so as Christians, when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ suffering, we should do something about it. Because we are the body of Christ. We should be doing something to help one another. We need to come alongside our brothers and sisters. You see somebody hurting, you see somebody in pain, we are to care for one another, whether it be in suffering or whether it be in rejoicing. We're supposed to be family Okay, now, what about the world, though? And you're like, well, that's that's great, Eric. You know, what what about the world? Well, Paul gives us a shopping list of how we're supposed to behave. In, in Romans twelve nine through eighteen, he says, "Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast. Hold fast to what is good." Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, we have to sit here, and it's so easy to get so upset when somebody comes to us and they're 
and they have these questions and they're challenging our faith or we sit there and somebody's done you wrong and you want to sit there and be like, man, you know, this evil thing has happened to me. What do I do? Again, bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You see somebody, you have a coworker that's something horrible has happened to them. They've lost a child. They've lost a house. Something has happened in, you know, in their family. Something's gone on. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be like, well, you know, the Bible says. You can do that. You can sit there and say, well, you know, planning this free will defense says that evil happened to you. No. You come alongside those person, those, those people. You put your arm around them, and you embrace them, and you, and you reach out to them. Again, we are the hands, we are the feet, we are the mouth of Christ here on earth. We are the body of Christ here on earth, and we need to act that way. One last point, and, is, and I really want to convey to you. When people are suffering from evil, when someone has done something bad to somebody else or when a disaster has fallen upon somebody else and they come up to you and there's tears streaming down their face and they say, why did God allow this to happen? I know I just said in First Peter 3.15 that we're always supposed to have an answer. On an individual level, we might not always have the answer. Okay? We might not always have the answer to why this happened. You know what one of the best answers? There's two great answers that you can give. When you sit there and you see somebody and there's tears streaming down their face and evil has happened in their lives, there's two things that you can say. It's not planning a free will defense. It's not God's going to work it out for his glory. They're coming to you. The emotion is real. The emotion is raw. The pain is real. It's in their face. It's not the time for the water cooler arguments. It's not the time for the philosophical arguments. What do you say? There's two things you can say. First one is, I don't know. I don't know why that happened to you. I don't have an answer in regards to that. The other option is this. And you embrace them. And you give them a hug. And you be that sounding board for those people. And you help them through it. And you come alongside them. Because we do more damage to people when we start theorizing as to why something happened in their life. People express their anguish in the face of unspeakable evil. Job asked why. Why is this happening to me? The whole book of Job is basically God, or excuse me, is basically Job saying, why? Why is this happening to me? God never says you shouldn't ask that question. He never says that. When God shows up in the thunderstorm in the end of the book, God goes through and says, you know what? I'm God. Let's talk about everything that I've done. I put the stars in the sky. I laid the foundations of the earth. I made the dinosaurs. I put the trees there. I made the giraffe have the long neck. I did all this stuff. I got under control. Yeah. He never sits there and never says, you know, you shouldn't ask why. I'm God, I can do what I want. He never sits there and he never says that to Job. He says, I'm here. I exist. I have it under control. And Job, Job's answer is, I'm going to be quiet now. Because obviously you are God. And you have it under control. What I like is what 
is what God says to Job's friends. If you want to flip into flip to the book of Job, chapter 42. And again, if you, if you really take nothing home today, I, I really want you to, to get this, this down. Job 42. Right after Job, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so he goes, basically Job's like, again, he's like, I, you know what, you're God. I'm fine with that. Verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me of what is right as my servant Job has. If you read the book of Job, Job is suffering. His friends come to comfort him. They sit together for a week without saying anything to him because he's covered head to toe in boils. His kids are all dead. His houses are all gone. His own wife is like, you should probably just curse God and die. It's like, thanks, honey. Thanks. So his friends show up. And in the arguments that you read, it's a back and forth. Job, and the basic idea is that Job's friends theorize as to why Job is suffering. Here, here their best friend is covered from head to toe, has lost all of his earthly possessions, even lost his health, is on death's door, but he just, obviously, he's not going to die, but he's suffering in every way, shape, and form. And Job's friends are like, well, you know, uh, he might have committed some sort of sin, and so, you know, that's why God's punishing you. Job's like, well, I haven't done anything. So then another friend's like, well, if you haven't done anything, well, then it was probably X as to why you're, you're suffering. And Job's like, well, I didn't do that either. And the other friend's like, well, you know, it could have been. It goes back and forth. And so when God shows up, he turns around and he tells his friends, what are you doing? What are you doing? Again, when we sit here and we theorize to people why they're suffering, it doesn't help them when the emotion is real. We have, there's time for the philosophical argument. There's time to sit there and have that water cooler argument. There's time to sit there and talk about, you know, that free will is there, free will is present, and so that's why evil is allowed to occur. And there's a time where we can sit there and we can say, well, you know, uh, you know God will do great things out of this. There's, time, there's a time and a place for that. But when the emotion is raw and the emotion is real and people are asking you the tough questions right there because that literally just happened to them, that's not the time to sit there and to, to, try, to, to try to do that. Telling people to read their Bible more, telling people to pray more, telling people to do that, that's not going to help them. That does not help them. Again, sitting up there and coming up with possibilities for why tragedy occurs right as it's occurring does not help. Over in Serbia, there was flooding just two weeks ago. 58 people died. Church leaders the other day said, well, you know, that's because of the sins of a contest that they had over in Europe. You think the families of those 58 people want to hear that? No, they don't want to hear that. It's in the middle of digging out of their house that's still underwater. What we should be doing is, again, being the hands and the feet and the mouth of Christ and reaching out to people in the time 
is hurting. The problem of evil is something that we face. It's a philosophical argument that people are going to throw at you. And we need to be able to meet that philosophical argument. But when people sit there and they're expressing the problem of evil, why is this happening to me? You know, if God is real, why is this happening to me? There's a time to sit there and to go ahead and and to just say, I don't know, but I'm here for you. Before I close here, I want to just put it all in perspective. Genesis 131. God saw everything that he had made. And it was good. Years ago, I don't know if you listen to, to talk radio. I have a 45-minute drive. I work, uh, uh, besides doing Grand Canyon, I work up at Petco, up in Pittsburgh. Stop in to see me sometime uh, as a manager up there. So I have 45 minutes from my house in Williamson to Pittsburgh. Uh, and so I wind up listening to talk radio every now and then. And one of the ones I listen to, uh, excuse me, listen to every now and then is uh, Bob Lonsberry. Your your mileage may vary as to what you think about Bob Lonsberry. Um, but one of the things he said when he talked about the nature of the news struck struck me, and it, it's kind of just stuck with me over the years. He says that the news is the abnormal. It's the out of the ordinary. It's why it makes the news. It's easy to lose perspective when all you see is evil all the time. But they report on the evil. They report on evil. And we sit there and we say, why is there evil in the world? All I see is evil in the world. Everywhere I turn, I turn on, I go online, and there's these news stories of evil. Or this happened to me, or this happened to a friend. Or, you know, the evil is the out of the ordinary. Every day, millions of people get up, have breakfast, go to work, have a good day at work, come home, spend time with their families, go to bed, repeat the process. That's normal. That's not news. And that's what he said. He goes, that's not news. What you hear in the news is everything that's gone wrong. Everything that's abnormal. Everything that shouldn't be that way. We must remember that God created this world good. His seal of approval is on this world. It says, and God said that it was very good. The world is created good. The world suffers because evil exists. But the presence of evil, the existence of evil, does not negate the existence of God. Amen? The presence of evil, for us Christians, what it should do, it should inspire us, should spur us on to do good works because we have that freedom to do good in the world. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. We need to be out there communicating these truths to people. We are to face down moral evil wherever it exists. We are to help those who suffer from evil as best we can. And what do we do? We point them back to God. We point them back to an omniscient omnipotent and holy good God who loves them. Our God is a good God. Amen. And he creates this world good. 
And so what we need to do is we need to point people in the face of evil, we need to point them back to the cross and show them that this is the epitome of a good God who died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And that's how good of a God he is, is that he loved you while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And that's what we need to do is we need to make sure that we are ultimately in all of this, whether we have those water cooler arguments, whether we have those philosophical debates, whether we just come up alongside somebody, put our arm around them, whether we just give them a hug and be a sounding board for them when tears are streaming down their face, that we are there and that we point them back to the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a good God. Lord God, evil does exist. We pray that you would give us the strength, Lord, to confront evil that's present in the world. Lord, give us the power. Give us the strength to confront evil when we see it. Give us the wisdom and the love to help those that are suffering, Lord, in the face of of that evil. Give us the words to say, Lord, when those people come to us and the tears are streaming down their face and the pain is evident in their life, Lord, give us that wisdom. Give us that strength. Give us the peace. Give us the words to say. Help us to be that light for you. Help us, Lord, to use that freedom that you've given us to do good in the world today. Help us to be instruments used by you to turn those evil situations into good, Lord. That, Lord, give us that faith that when we go through these trials, when we go through these tribulations and the moral evil is upon us because somebody has done us wrong or that natural evil has come upon us because because of the world that we live in, Lord, that you would give us the strength. And that, Lord, we might not ever have an answer, Lord. And we know that fact. We might not ever have an answer, but we know who does have the answer. And that's you, Lord. Help us to be mindful of that. Let us not fail, Lord, in using the opportunities that the world presents to us, that evil, Lord, presents to us to show them your glory and show them the cross, Lord. And Lord, just bless everybody who's in there, in here today, who hears this message and that they might be able to take away and be that light and that salt and that witness of your love and your goodness to the people of this world, Lord. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was a good word. Thank you, Eric. I, uh, yeah, you can give him a, you can give him a curtain applause. Thanks, Eric. Good job, man. Good job. I, um, you know, I, I, I think the bottom line is we live in a real world and, and sometimes people need to see the compassion that we, that Christ has in us as we reveal it to the world. And as Eric was speaking, as he was finishing, I'm so glad he finished up with that last point. Cause I think that's the most important thing we can have our theological ducks in a row, but when somebody's truly hurting, like many of you have gone through really difficult things in your life, whether it's evil that's done against you or things that are unexplainable that's happened in your life. 
It's always that person that stands beside you. And I always remember when Kathleen and I, we went through the the tragedy of losing our first child. I always remember, here I am a pastor, and I have to, I'm so used to ministering to people. And and what did it for me was... It was it was the church ministering to me, and I had to let that happen in my life for Kathleen and I. It was neat to be on the other side, to see people just not 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 give me a bunch of scriptures, not share all their stories with me, but just be there. And I can remember there's this one friend of mine. His name was Joe Stills, and and Joe was just he was a he was a Baptist minister, praise God. And uh, we had an accountability group, and I remember I had to. Um, uh, give blood for uh, for our daughter's first surgery she had to go through for for her heart defect and I had to go down to the hospital I was all by myself um, and I remember I went down there and I casually mentioned it to Joe like a week before as I got down to the give blood there was Joe at the clinic waiting for me and I said Joe what are you what are you doing here he goes just here to sit with you so I never forgot that. That meant more. He didn't come to preach or to give me a bunch of scriptures. or He just came to sit with me for that time and be my friend. That's what people need. It's a friend. Somebody that has compassion. I was thinking about the scripture as, as you were, as Eric, you were sharing. It's in Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Let me just say this. You have, if, if you're here today... And you're suffering today. And there's things that are still in the attic of your mind of things that have happened in your past. I want you to know that you have an advocate in Jesus Christ who understands. Who even through his suffering was obedient to God. And because of his obedience, he was glorified to the right hand of God. To authenticate his obedience was shown that he indeed was God and the son of God. And through his act of obedience, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection, he was glorified and now is placed in that seat of honor. So you have one that you can go to. I'm not going to be able to perfectly understand what you're going through. I can't do it. And that's why I love when Eric said, listen, you know, sometimes you just don't have the answers because everybody, what they're going through and their suffering is all different. And to try to sit there and say, oh, I get that. You, we don't get it. And for us to try to understand would be ridiculous. But there is one who does understand, and that's Jesus. And through your compassion, through that person, and listening and loving them, what you're actually doing is showing them the love of Christ and how Christ works through your life. That hopefully they too in turn will turn to that Savior and bow their knee to Him, even when life doesn't make sense. Christ is there, and He's our advocate. So if that's you today and that's what you're going through, I just want you to know that Christ is there. Turn to him and let him be your strength when you are weak. Let him give you wisdom when you have no answers. Let him be your advocate. He is our advocate. You can turn to him at any time and he will be there for you. Amen. Eric, that was a really strong, strong word. I, I appreciate 
your words. And, and I appreciate, here's the thing I appreciate about Eric too. Very, he's just smart. And I know I tease him about all his, his, his master's degrees. Cause I'm, I'm just jealous and he's so smart. And I love that about Eric, but here's the thing I love about Eric too, is that it's not about the degrees. It's about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that was so evident in the words that, that Eric spoke today. So it's not, listen, it's not always that you have the perfect words. It's not that always you say, well, well, I can't say anything because I don't, I don't know what to say because I, I'll feel like I'll make a mistake. Just be there. Just be there. That's what the Lord wants you to do is just be there. And that's the way we combat this evil world is by being there and being light in this dark world, right? A city on a hill can't be hidden, right? Don't hide your light under a bushel, right? Let, let, let's be there. Let's be those people that, are, that, that go in with the love of Christ, that combat the evil, and so that people know that we love them. Amen? It's easy to talk. It's much harder to actually do and be the feet that Jesus, of his feet, to reach out to this world with his love. Amen. So, Lord, may we just go in your grace today. Thank you for these words. May we go in your grace today. And that, Lord, when we see evil, may we not be these preachy, preachy people that just talk about, and look how evil this world is, but may we actually be the people that go and show your love and are compassionate to people and walk alongside them and not try to understand everything, not try to give the answers for everything, but, Lord, that we would be your feet and your hands extended into this world to show them your love. So thank you. For this word today, may it just penetrate our hearts today, God, that we might do your will and and that we would be obedient to you even in our times of suffering. We thank you, Lord, that you use these things. And the bottom line, Lord, we know that ultimately you are good. You're a good God, and we can trust you today. Thank you that we have these examples that we can turn to in the word of God to know that you are true and that you are faithful. And we just give you our lives today. Thank you for this word. Bless Eric, Lord, and his future, God. And we thank you for him being a blessing in our church's blesses marriage and his family. Thank you for them, God. So we give you this day now in Jesus' wonderful name. In Jesus' wonderful name. And everybody said, amen, amen.